So I want to start out today with a question, and uh, it's a question that may seem odd to you, but it reflects the year that we're in. And my question is, how long ago did you decorate for Christmas? I know in the Savage family, our rule has traditionally been that we celebrate Thanksgiving and then we decorate for Christmas, but 2020 pushed my wife to a new level, and so she compromised. Our tree was up before Thanksgiving. And I know for many of my friends, as soon as Halloween was over, and it was November 1st, they were outside doing up all the decorations, turning on the Christmas music, uh, getting out their favorite holiday eats and drinks, because there just was a need for that kind of joy and excitement and just return to some of those traditions of yesteryear. Well, part of decorating for Christmas for many of us is decorating a tree. And so I wonder for you, are you a a real tree person or are you a fake tree person? Now, now I say fake in all love because I, for my whole life, have been an artificial Christmas tree person. I grew up in the house with my mom, and my mom is allergic to literally everything, so we could not have a real Christmas tree. And then I married my wife, who has allergies of her own, and so I have known nothing other than a tree like this, an artificial Christmas tree. I've never had to worry about watering it or throwing it out at the, at the end of the Christmas season. But as I've been thinking about this series that we're in called What If Jesus Was Serious? And what Jesus talks about in this final section we're going to look at today, I think a Christmas tree like this one is a great symbol for some of the things that Jesus is talking about and trying to address. You know, whether it's an artificial tree or a tree that's dying, because you may call your tree a real tree, but let's be honest, it started dying the moment you cut it down or it was cut down and shipped to the lot where you bought it. None of these trees are actually vibrant and alive. And we dress them up with lights so that they attract attention. We add sparkles and and shine and decorations so that they look a little bit better than they actually are. We we hide all of the empty spots. Many of us will put a, a tree, a star on top of the tree or other crosses and nativity scenes, uh, uh, symbols of, of our faith. And, and some of us will even add fake fruit to our tree to give the idea that the tree is actually alive and bearing fruit. As I think about all of those ways that we dress up and decorate our trees to make them seem a lot more than they are when they're just standing there and bare, I wonder if the same thing happens for you and for me. I wonder if in our own lives, we feel the need to add lots of shine and lots of light. I wonder in our own lives if we we try to add a lot of decorations to cover up parts that we don't feel look so good. And maybe we even fake some fruit to make it look like we're more fruitful than we actually are. Maybe we add symbols and and decorative pieces that give off an idea of, of our faith that maybe go beyond the actual real state. Of our faith. And I'm not here to, to poo-poo on a Christmas tree. I've got one in my house and, and I'm going to continue to use it. But as you look at your Christmas tree this year, maybe you can even see it from where you're watching this service right now. I wonder if it can be a symbol and a reminder for us of what we're going to see Jesus teach in this series again and again that Jesus wasn't just trying to get us to dress up our lives so they looked good on the outside. 
Jesus, if we take him seriously, was calling us to a life that it didn't just touch our outside, but our inside too. It wasn't just about the appearance of something, but the substance of something. As we've been walking through this series for the last seven weeks, what we've seen is that if we take Jesus seriously, we're going to have to rethink a lot of things. We're going to have to reimagine the way that we show up in the world, and we're going to have to reconsider how we treat every single person that we interact with. Well, today we're going to be closing out this series. And my hope is that even if we close out this series today, that God's not done with what he accomplishes through this series. That goes on for weeks and months and years to come. But as we dive into the last section of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, here's the big idea that we're going to discover. And that's that the truth outlasts everything else. The truth outlasts everything else. In a world and in a year where we've asked questions like never before about what's true, what's fake, what's real, what's not, what gives off the appearance of something but isn't that something, what we're going to discover today is that the truth, we can know it because it outlasts everything else. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to get it out, turn it on, open it up, to this passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. If you're new to the Bible, if you scroll down in your digital Bible, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be the book of Matthew today. If you're new to your physical Bible, open it up to the middle. You'll hit Psalms and head towards the back. You'll find Matthew there. It's one of four biographies of the life and teaching of Jesus. We've been camping out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 since mid-October, working through Jesus' most well-known and longest extended teaching. And today, in this passage, in these 13 verses, we're going to discover four contrasting images that Jesus gives us that ask four powerful questions. So in these 13 verses, one by one, we're going to look at a pair of of contrasting images that raise for us a powerful question. And so we're going to work through this passage kind of chunk by chunk. So if you have a copy of the handout, you've downloaded it from our website, you're taking notes, we're going to work through these piece by piece. And here's the first one in verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. The first contrasting image that Jesus gives here in these first two verses is of a wide gate and a narrow gate. A wide gate and a narrow gate. Now, if you were to walk into a city in the day of Jesus— You likely walked into a city that was surrounded by walls for protection and, uh, you know, preparation for enemy attack. And so you had to go through a gate like this to enter into the city. Now, that's different than our world today. You know, if you wanted to get into Prescott, there's four, five, six different ways through different roads to get in. There's no gates to go through, no walls to travel through. But in this day, you did. And you often had to go through a wide gate or a narrow gate. And Jesus uses these contrasting images to drive home an important point. But to understand the point, we first need to define the difference. What is the difference between the wide gate that Jesus describes 
and the narrow gate. Let's start with the wide gate. The wide gate that Jesus is describing is the gate of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious group that had a tremendous amount of power and influence in the day of Jesus. And they taught a way of life that had faith in oneself. Now they would tell their followers, and if they were asked, they would say, no, our faith is in God. But practically, when you looked at their life, their faith was in themselves and the acts of external righteousness that they did. They carried out all of these acts. You know, they followed hundreds of laws and their confidence And their sense of security in their relationship with God was all about what they did and how righteous they were in their acts. And they were convinced that they were going the right way. And many people were following that way when Jesus came. The only problem is, is that Jesus, when he spoke to Pharisees, he talked to them about their external acts covering over dead hearts. In one instance, Jesus was eating with a Pharisee and he said, you are a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, everything looks great. You appear righteous, but inside you're like a rotting dead grave. Everything looks great on the outside, but on the inside there's death. And so Jesus is saying, hey, this is the wide gate. It is faith in oneself and and a conviction that you're okay because you're doing all the right things on the outside. But as Jesus teaches again and again, he isn't working an outside-in kind of transformation. No, he's working in an inside-out transformation. And that's why the narrow gate represents Jesus. And not faith in what we do, but in faith in what he has done. And all throughout Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has been teaching an internal transformation. Not just the minimum of what you have to do on the outside to look good, but what it means to really be good on the inside. And Jesus is seeking to introduce a new heart in his followers, to move them from a dead heart to a new heart that's alive. Many have said that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. The reason why Jesus had to come is not that we had a reason to have faith in ourselves or that we were righteous. The reason Jesus came is that we were dead in and of ourselves spiritually. And until we put our faith and trust in him and we experience the transformation that he brings, we're going the wrong way. Now, if you were to move from the day of Jesus 2,000 years ago to today, the modern manifestation of this wide gate of the Pharisees is what I call the myth of good people going to heaven. If you were to ask most people in our culture today, many of whom are sitting in a church or watching a church online today, if you were to ask them, why do you have hope and faith that you will be with God for eternity? Many of them would say, well, I'm a pretty good person. They would proceed to tell you about the good things they've done. And they would tell you about about the people that they're better than. And they would say, well, because of that, I think I'm going to be good with God when it comes to the time that I die. The only problem is, is if that's the case, why did Jesus come? If, If that was the case, why did Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me? Why did Jesus die if we in and of ourselves were good and on our own could be fine with God? 
No, Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7 that there is a wide gate and it leads to destruction and many people go through it. And there's a narrow gate and it is the difficult road that leads to life and few find it. No, Jesus is saying that we are not good, that we are not good in and of ourselves and we're not good with God. That's why he had to come. And that way is a narrow gate. It is a focused gate. And Jesus himself said, I am that gate. And so if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it means you're actually going to have to follow in the way of Jesus. And, and for me, this hits home because in, in some areas of my life, I'm a leader. I'm the one who's charting the course. I'm the one who's going in a direction. But I when reading this passage, I'm reminded that in Jesus, my primary identity is a follower, not a leader. And even if in some places I have a leadership title and a role that is a leader in my heart of hearts, I'm a follower long before I'm a leader. And if I'm going to walk through the narrow gate, that means I will be following Jesus. He is the one who's leading me. He is the one I'm following. And the same thing is true for you. So this powerful contrast, this first contrast of a wide gate and a narrow gate raises a question for us. And that's this, am I following Jesus or am I going my way? Are you following Jesus through the narrow gate? Or are you going your own way, which is the wide gate? Is your confidence and hope both now and in the future in Jesus? Or is it in yourself? And don't answer that question too quickly. Because you might profess that it's Jesus. But when it comes to your actual way of living, is it really Jesus? Or is it yourself? It's the first contrast Jesus gives us. He goes on in verse 15. He says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by the fruit. The second contrasting image set we have is of a good tree and a bad tree. Jesus introduces this contrast of a good tree and a bad tree. And, and the contrast for those people was to solve a very real need. Because in their world, they had people who claimed to be prophets. They claimed to be speaking on behalf of God. The only problem was they weren't speaking God's words. They were speaking their own words. Jesus gives an image of a a wolf in sheep's clothing. I found this image online. It was really hard to find a wolf in sheep's clothing, but I found it for you. And this is the problem that Jesus is, is addressing. He's saying, hey, there are people who seem to be something they are not. And so he goes, how do you determine that? Well, you put them to a test. Now we're very familiar with a test in 2020. It's the COVID-19 test. And you get a swab and either in 20 minutes or in a couple days, you get a response. 
And that's how you determine if, if you have COVID-19. But determining whether a person is the real deal or not, determining the, the nature of who they are, Jesus says, doesn't involve a nasal swab. It involves fruit. He says, if you want to know whether a person is a real prophet or a true prophet, if you want to know if they're the real thing or an imitation of the real thing, then look at their fruit. Now you might say, Scott, that, that seems like a weird metaphor. What is a person's fruit? Well, I made a list here for you. A person's fruit, your fruit, my fruit, is what you do when no one's looking. It's the way you treat people. It's how you respond to adversity. It's what you say in private. And it's what those closest to you become like because of you. It is the outcome or the expression of your life in ways that you cannot edit, filter, or control. Your fruit is what comes out of your life as you live your life. It's what comes out of your life as you get squeezed. It's what comes out of your life when you're not worried about putting on a front or putting on a show. It's what naturally comes out of who you are in the same way that fruit from a tree is the natural byproduct of the tree. And Jesus says, good trees produce good fruit, naturally. Bad trees produce bad fruit, naturally. And here's the thing. If you're going to identify the fruit's quality and identity, you're going to need time and proximity. If you want to know whether a tree is a good tree and it produces good fruit, the two things you need is you need time because fruit doesn't happen at the speed of Amazon Prime and you need proximity. Because like with this Christmas tree, there are times that I see a Christmas tree from a long way away and I go, is that a real tree or a fake tree? And I have to get close to figure it out. In the same way, you look at a tree, go, man, that's a great tree, or that's a great, great piece of fruit. But what happens? You bite into the, the, the fruit, proximity, and you see if it's good fruit or bad fruit. Over time, as the fruit comes to life, you see if it's good fruit or bad fruit. And it's the same way with people. You want to see the kind of person somebody is? You need time and you need proximity. Because we can all look good in a moment. We can all look good from a distance. But the, the nature of who we really are, the nature of our relationship with God, the, the words that we speak about our faith, those will be revealed to be true or false over time and in proximity. Because at the end of the day, you cannot fake heart change. You can fake for a time behavior change. You can fake for a time verbal change. But at the end of the day, if there has been real heart change, that will be revealed. And if we have just kind of done an external makeover, but not dealt with the heart, that will be revealed. Because you can't sustain fake heart change. Eventually, the truth comes out. Jesus himself says it. He says, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Just wait and get close enough and you'll see. And yet we live in a world that wants to act as if this isn't true. And we live in a world that values the appearance of something over the substance of it. Let me give you a real life example. 
My kids love going grocery shopping with me. They love going to the grocery store with me more than I love them coming with me. And that's because it typically takes about twice as long with them. I never yell at myself when I grocery shop, and I'm often yelling at them. And every two feet, I have to explain why we're not going to buy (laughs) what they want me to buy. But their favorite part of going to the grocery store, next to asking if they can buy their favorite candy at the checkout line, is when they go past the floral section with me, because they always want to buy their mom flowers. So a couple weeks ago, we were going past the floral section, and they see it, like, Dad! Can we get mom flowers? And, and we were fairly close to being done, which meant, means my patience had worn down. And I said, fine, anything to get us done with this faster. So they ran over and they picked this set of one dozen orange roses. So we brought them home. They gave them to their mom. They put them in some water from the kitchen table. Within a couple of days, they opened and they were beautiful. And my wife, on that morning when they opened, She said, you know what's interesting about those flowers? She said, you know what's sad about those flowers? And I was like, sad, they look great. She said, go over to them and smell them. And I went over to them. And I go, they don't smell. She goes, I know. She goes, when they engineered these flowers to come out in this color, which is not a natural color that's found in the wild, she said, they got the color right but at the cost of the smell. And she said, that's why when I asked you last year to buy me a new rose bush, I said, I don't care what the color is. Just tell me about the smell. Friends, I think that's where we find ourselves often. Caught up in looking good from a distance, but not caught up in being good up close. See, I don't want to appear good from a distance. I want to be good up close. And I think in your heart of hearts, you want the same thing. So we in this world need to reject the temptation to look good at the cost of being a U.S. Scott. How do you do that? Jesus spoke about this in John 15. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If, if we're going to produce good fruit as good trees, it does not have anything to do with us, you know, willing ourselves into it. It has to do with us remaining in relationship and connected to Jesus. So I would encourage you today, if you're worried about the fruit that's coming out of your life, attend to your roots and your connection to and your relationship with Jesus. Because when you remain in relationship with him, connected to him, he brings that good fruit out of your life. Here's the second question that this image raises for us. What kind of fruit is my life bearing? What kind of fruit is your life bearing? And if you go, Scott, I have no idea. Here's a little hint for you. Ask around. Ask the people you work with. Ask the person you're married to. Ask the people you live with. I'm going to hazard a guess that they know. Now you might say, I'm not sure I want to hear it. And that may be the question you need to ask before you ask this question. But I think you'll figure out that question if you really want to know. Let's go on to the third passage 
Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. The third contrasting image set is this. Those who do God's will and those who fake obedience. If I'm honest with you, this passage right here, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, I think is arguably the most sobering passage in all of the Bible. It's certainly, arguably, the most sobering thing that Jesus said while he was walking on the earth. See, Jesus here is talking about a very real thing that we all have to reckon and rumble with. And that's that there are people who have tried to deceive God while deceiving others and themselves. Jesus in this passage is speaking very directly to the fact that there are people who through their life have tried to deceive God while accomplishing the deceiving of others and the deceiving of themselves. These people think that they're good with God. These people think that they're going the right way until it comes to the end and they stand in the presence of God and Jesus says, get out of here. I don't know you. And they go, wait, 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 wait. I I did all the right things. I did this and I did this and I did this, didn't I? Jesus says, "I I didn't know you. He says, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now let's be honest. All of us have broken the law. We covered this in the first set of images. All of us have broken the law. None of us are good. So why doesn't this description involve all of us? Jesus has been talking this entire passage, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, about what it means to follow him, about what it means to obey him, what it means to live in this new reality he calls his kingdom in relationship with him. And this word lawbreakers is is not just someone who breaks the law. It is someone who breaks the law and doesn't care. Another way to translate the word lawbreakers is men of lawlessness. It's this idea that you're breaking the law, you know it, and you don't care. There is a callousness to the heart of the people Jesus is talking to. They knew that they were breaking the law. They knew that they didn't have a relationship with Jesus and they didn't care. Some of you right now are feeling uncomfortable because you're like, I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and have him tell me, get away from me. I didn't know you. That will happen if you are like one of these people who deceive God and you don't care. So here's the question I have for you. When you feel God's conviction in your heart, do you 
care. When you recognize that you're living for the approval of other people and you care more about what they think than God does. When you realize that God is convicting you and showing you something in you that cannot continue. Does your heart break and you repent and you, you come before God seeking mercy and forgiveness and grace? Or do you ignore it, harden your heart towards it and push it away? See, I think this passage should not scare, concern, worry us if we can remember a time where God's conviction has brought repentance, where, where God's showing us the true state of who we are, ha, has, has humbled us, broken our hearts, caused us to run to him. If, if we have turned our hearts broken and sinful over to him, sought his forgiveness, we have that relationship with him where you, you hear his conviction, you care and you respond. If that's you, don't lose sleep tonight because of this passage. But if you know in your heart of hearts that God has been convicting you about something, that God has been showing you something, that God has been saying, hey, I want to have a relationship with you. We're not okay. And you've been ignoring that and hardening your heart about that. Then I hope this message is a wake-up call for you. And I hope that today, before you go to sleep, that you have a moment with God where you respond to that conviction. And maybe that, that could begin with you answering this question. What am I doing and why am I doing it? Maybe you have been doing lots of things that you think are good Christian things. Attending church, giving, maybe being part of a group, serving, reading your Bible, uh, praying. But you've been doing all of those things for all of the wrong reasons. You've been doing those things so that people think you look good. You've been doing those things so that you appear good. You've been doing those things so that you hope God will give you what he wants you, you want him to give you. But I can't tell you how many stories I've heard in my short life of people who were pillars in churches, people who were pastors of churches, who woke up one day and realized that what they were doing was not out of a relationship with Jesus that they had been doing all of these things and having these roles and they never had actually become someone who had a relationship with Jesus. And they walked an aisle. <laughs> they got saved. They began a relationship with Jesus after all of that time because God woke them up. And I would encourage you, don't waste today. Don't let today go away if that's you without responding to God moving in your heart. Because the last thing I want is for you to have the experience that Jesus described here. So ask yourself, what am I doing? <laughs> and why am I doing it? Here's the final passage here in verse 24. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house and yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Jesus here contrasts two things. He contrasts those who hear him and obey and those who hear and do not obey. Jesus in this passage is talking about the building of a house. 
If you've ever watched a house go up, you know that the most amount of time in building the house happens long before the framing happens. It happens in the dirt. It happens in the digging and the laying of the foundation. And Jesus here, in talking about what it means to be somebody who takes him seriously, he uses the image of a house being built and it all comes down to the foundation. A house that is built on the rock and a house that is built on the sand. And he says that those who hear and obey his word are those who build their house on a rock. And those who hear his word and do not obey it are those who build on a sand, a shifting and uncertain foundation. And this is what you have to decide to do today and with this series. You have to decide if Jesus is somebody worth taking seriously. If Jesus is somebody worth trusting. If Jesus is someone who's worth building the foundation of your life upon. Here's how Dallas Willard explores this. He said, it is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real life matters where we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. And can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord If he were not smart, if he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could Jesus be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be the most informed and the most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived? If Jesus is who we say he is, then he really is smart enough, wise enough, well-informed enough for us to build the foundation of our life upon. And Jesus, in concluding this teaching, says, look, if you're going to hear me and do what I say, it's like you're building your house on a strong foundation so that when the rains come and the floods come and the adversity comes, you will endure. But he says, some of you, are going to choose to go a different way. You're going to choose to hear me and yet not do what I've told you to do. You're going to go, great teaching, Jesus. I've got it from here. And if that's you, it's like building your house on sand. And you go, Scott, why would anybody build their house on sand? Well, in the day of Jesus, building your house on sand was a convenient option for three reasons. Building your house on sand was easier, it was cheaper, and it was faster. And let's be honest, really honest. How many times are our decisions driven by these three words? What's the easiest path? What's the path that won't cost me as much? And what's the path I can get to the quickest? How many of your decisions this year have been based upon what was easiest, cheapest, and fastest? It's one thing to decide that when it comes to how you buy something or how you ship something. It's another thing to decide based upon this for how you build your life. And you know, like I do, or maybe you've discovered, 
that over time, the decision you make with your foundation is revealed in the house you build. Because if you build your house on a not good foundation, eventually what you're going to have is you're going to have cracks in your house. And you're going to be tempted to just deal with the crack, to put some caulk in there, to try to paint over it. But if you've ever been in or around a house with cracks like this, you can deal with the stucco, you can deal with the frame, you can deal with the paint, but until you address the foundation that is shifting, you will constantly be chasing cracks all through your house. And friends, if nothing else, what 2020 has revealed is the true state of our foundation. To switch to a related metaphor it has revealed what is going on in our lives beneath the surface. 2020 has revealed that what's going on up here is really a reflection of stuff that you can't see. And what we've seen this year is the real state of our hearts, the real state of our relationships, the real state of our friends. And as we said earlier, you can't fake it forever. Eventually, the truth comes out because the truth outlasts everything else. And so when it comes to your life, here's the question Jesus is asking. What foundation are you building your life upon? Today, I want you to consider, what foundation am I building my life upon? Am I building it on taking Jesus seriously and putting what he says into practice? Living life with him and in the world according to to the fact that he really does know what he's talking about? Or am I just hearing and reading Jesus and going, awesome, good to hear, thank you. I'm going to do what I think from that is best. I'm going to do this my way. I've got it from here. Friends, if nothing else, 2020 has revealed the foundation that we've been building on. The challenges of this year have revealed the true state of the foundation in your life. And you can ignore it and run from it and try to deal with the superficial elements of it. But what if God is allowing the things that are happening to you this year so that you will finally face the truth? So that you will deal with it and so that he can work in the midst of it. Friends, the truth outlasts everything else. What if today you began to face it and stopped running from it? What if you faced it with him and allowed Jesus to do what he's been wanting to do all 